Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. I'm Dave Marr. I'm a comedian who lives in Chicago. Nine years ago, I survived a month-long coma, and I woke up with questions. That's why I'm doing this podcast. This week, I'm talking to Mark Richardson. Mark Richardson is a buddy of mine who I go goes back with me to my first full-time job out of college, which was writing music news for Pitchfork, the infamous, famous, legendary music review website. I love music criticism. I like music writing a lot. I still read a lot of it. I still follow a lot of it. And Mark's stuff is a great introduction. If you want accessible writing about music and the way it relates to our lives, to memory, to a lot of the things that we talk about on this show. A lot of my work has been influenced by music. I am very proud of the fact that when people come and see my shows, they often ask me about certain songs that we're playing. That makes me feel great. So Mark is a great entree into the world of music writing. If that's not a world you're already in, if it is, you probably already know that he's great. You also probably already know that Pitchfork laid off a bunch of people. I mean, Condé Nast, who Pitchfork got sold to. It's a lot of inside baseball there. And I think that must, those those layoffs that got people thinking about the, you know, the site's big influential tenure, which, I mean, who knows what the future of that is, but got people thinking and reminiscing about the sort of glory days of Pitchfork, which got me thinking about my glory days, you know, in my first job. And Mark is someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while. And so I am glad to be able to bring you this conversation between me and Mark. I do want to say that I produce this podcast without ads or corporations. So if you believe in this is your afterlife, I would love for you to become a patron of the show, which you can do at patreon.com slash Dave Marr. When you do, you immediately get access to an extended version of this conversation, a very extended version of this conversation, almost two hours, where I talk to Mark about his work. He gives me marriage advice. So yeah, I also want to thank Pigeon Level patrons G, Barry Fontenot, Shuba Singh, Debo, Fred Fidoa, and Katie Lou Ellen for making this show possible. And I want to tell you that thisisyourafterlife.com exists now. It didn't. When I last brought you an episode, I got to work on it, and I'm really excited about this, the website. So if you want a a clean nice way to share the show this is your afterlife.com is the way to do it here is me and mark richardson in this episode paint your hell a customized to your own particular embarrassments fears Whatever the most hellish experiences are for you, yeah, draw from all of them right now. Well, let's see. Um, you know, it's funny because I think, yeah, let me think about, um, it's a, this is one of those things where you kind of sift through what it seems like culture's going to expect you to say. Yes. And then also like, what seems very specific to what would seem hellish to me. And, um, you know, because, um, like being alone is something that people would describe as hell. Like you can imagine a version of hell where like, you're the, you know, the, the only living, um, it's just you, you know? Um, but that's always, like, like many people, that's always been a little bit of a fantasy of mine to be the only person in the world. Like, sure. You know, it's like, and so, um, you can just walk around, you, you know, you have to worry about anybody else. And <laughs> I don't actually want to live in that world, but, um, that doesn't feel quite as hellish to me. But, um, when I think about, um, what my hell would be like, I think about, um, I think about constant anxiety that is turned up 
to an unimaginable de degree and never ceases. So like um, fear of, you know, what might happen. So more than actually being in pain at that moment, which is terrible, it's, it's if I took the, because I, I do have, um, I definitely, you know, suffer from anxiety and, um, and, you know, in, in the, in the spectrum of kind of, you know, mental health, um, ailments, I I'm definitely way more on like the overpowering anxiety mm -hmm. and then, um, I've never really had anything clinical depression, but, um, my anxiety can get pretty extreme. And, um, when I think of, and when I have extreme anxiety, it kind of manifests itself as dread where I'm thinking about the future and everything looks bleak and, um, rather than, you know, make me feel depressed, it, it like just turns my nervous system into like 220 volts electricity. And, um, so when I think of hell, I think of like being in, in constantly in that state of anxiety about the future. So it's not so much what's happening to me at that moment, but what might happen later. So <laughs> it's know? a mental state. Yes. Are there better or worse or rather more or less hellish things to be anxious about? I would say, um, yes, there are more hellish things to be anxious about and like, then I would endure here on earth, you know, um, it's, it's a, it's of a, it's of a greater, you know, it's, it's greater intensity, um, than things I could imagine here, but rather than seeing these terrible things happening, I'm actually thinking about the fact that they're coming. So wait, you're saying the the things that you think could give you the most anxiety are like physically impossible to happen on earth? No, no, they could, but they're just very unlikely. But I feel like in hell they could be manifested, you know, <laughs> seeing like someone you love being tortured or something. Okay. I mean, okay. Getting, sure, sure, sure. You know, sure. so it's like um yeah, that that does happen. You know, that is that does happen on earth and there is hell on earth where that's that's going on right now but um just given who you know where i'm in my life it's yeah. not very likely no i understand that but um but yeah that kind of fear if i knew it was inevitable and knew it was coming the anxiety that that would generate and the fact that i couldn't fix it would be its own its own kind of hell that feels very particular to me it's nice that it's an outward facing anxiety that it's not just yeah. a that feels more noble or something to be like, well, I'm anxious about my loved ones being tortured. Rather yeah. Then. Well, yeah. The people are going to laugh at me or something. Yeah. Right. 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 Or that I'm going to be yeah. tortured even. I mean, obviously right. there's anxiety there, but it feels like, I don't know. It feels like some ultimate test of, of character that, that, that at the root is, <laughs> is a concern for other people. Well, yeah, I would say that, yes, something happening to other people does sound worse than it happening to myself for some reason. I will say that, but I th it doesn't seem noble to me. Like to me, if anything, um, if anything, it's causes me problems, you know, that um, I'm more apt to take, want to take care of somebody else than I do myself. And that, that, that has its own problems, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, which is its and, own kind of grandiosity. Yeah. yeah. And from the outside, everyone would be like, oh, look at him. He's always helping people out. And, um, you know, and then people say that and it feels good. But then the truth is that um, if I'm not, it, by not taking care of myself, I'm probably, you know, inhib you know, I'm probably having a negative impact on my ability to help other people. What do you hope happens when you die? So, um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've, I've listened to your podcast and I, I knew that what was Thank coming. You. And so um, I, but I've surprised myself by not preparing for these things and writing about. So I'm just going. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. Here. That's good. That's, that's <laughs> the best. 
Um, so, you know, what I hope happens after I die, like the best possible thing I could imagine is, um, I, you know, I, I would say like Christian heaven sounds pretty nice, um, (laughs) (laughs) but where, you know, you, you go somewhere and you're reunited with people you love and you you don't have any worries now. And, um, the anxiety I mentioned isn't there, but, um, that's, I, I've, I've never for a second believed that that's possible. So, um, I, when I say I hope for it, like I'm, I'm just talking about, about it in like a, that would be nice kind of way. Um, no, I know you're not proselytizing to me. Yeah. But like in, in terms of, what I what I feel like I can hope for, given my beliefs and my understanding of, um, you know, physics and biology, mm-hmm. um, is this after you die or the moment of death? Your choice. Yeah. So I think that um, I I think that you know when when you die, it goes dark and it's like you were never born, and um, so that's I think that's definitely what's going to happen. However, um, there's a lot of ways to get there. And, and that, that doesn't even sound sad to me. Like, that seems like, okay. But um, I do think that, like, uh, my mother died last year. And um, she was in hospice for, like, um, almost six weeks. And I was back in Michigan. And my siblings came back. And we all, you know, I guess if you read... I talked about that Frank Zappa newsletter. I did. I uh, I read that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, uh, but you know, like that was, you know, I wasn't even very, I wasn't very close with my mother. You know, it's weird because um, if your parents die, um, it's kind of the first assumption everyone makes is like, oh man, you must be crushed. I'm sure, I'm sure you're like, you loved each other so much or whatever. <laughs> and like, I, I, my mom definitely loved me and I, and I loved her, but like, we just weren't very close at all. And, um, and, but in the last, so it was, a, it, it's going through that experience. It's just different when it's like, um, you know, it's just, it was just about caring for her really. And um, it, obviously it was sad and yeah. I thought back through my life and everything, but um, it's not like, people who say like, yeah, my mom's my best friend. And like, I don't even know what that would be like. Right. You know, that sounds, it would be very different and probably much more difficult. But, um, but the fact that, uh, you know, my mom um, had was, you know, she was surrounded by people she loved and she was comfortable and she didn't seem afraid mm. um, was, that was pretty amazing. And like when I saw that, I was like, oh, you know, if, if, if you're dying, this looks pretty good, actually. You know, um, she had cancer and um, I just was like, I, my father died as well. But um, that was five years ago. But when by the time I got there, he was already unconscious. So I never got to talk to him or anything. Mm. And um, so anyway, it was like if, as, you, as you get older and you're around a lot, if you're on death more and, you, you know, you see you see it up close and you're spending time with people and you're there when they actually die um you start to get like a little bit more of an idea of what's what is a nice version of that look like you know yeah and um i think seeing my, my i felt like it was something we were all all the kids were very proud of is that my we gave my mom a nice version of that and um and you know she was a um you know good mother in some ways and not so good in others. <laughs> okay. And, um, so it was like, we, it was, a, it just felt like more like a gift. It was a gift that was given like, you know, everyone deserves it. I'll say that. Like, um, so everyone, you know, it, it'd be nice if everyone got to experience that. Yeah. So, no, um, I mean, there's a few things more horrifying than hearing about someone semi-conscious and not at peace as they're done. Yeah. That is a very... Oh, and that, and it happens. I know it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, it was, it was compounded. I guess it's like, it's fine to talk about my mom's death, given the, what the content is of your podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. There's a, you know, (laughs) there's a content warning in the title of the podcast. Okay. Well, it was interesting because, um, my mom also had dementia. So, um, not severe. She'd lived independently up until the time she found out she had cancer, but she'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and, um, Later, we thought, like, maybe it wasn't Alzheimer's, but it, it progressed and her memory wasn't great. And she had trouble speaking, which is mm. a common thing, like aphasia. But she was, all, like I said, she was also living her life and very happy up towards the time of her cancer diagnosis. But the problem was that, like, when she was diagnosed with cancer, stage four cancer, it came out of nowhere. And it went instantly from mom's doing great. She's really healthy. So she has stage four cancer. Right. And she has six weeks to live, you know. And, um, the problem was, is that like, uh, she didn't remember that she had cancer. And so I had to tell her the story of her, of what was happening and that she had cancer and that it was, couldn't be treated. I probably told her that 40 times start to finish. So when I'd go in the morning and see her like, Hey mom, how's it going? Did you sleep well? She'd be like, good. She's like, what am I doing here? When, when do I go home? And I'd be like, um, well, you know, and so then I would tell the whole story. You're actually not going to go home. Like this is your home now, and you know, here's the kind of cancer you have, and it can't it's can't be operated on, and you know, and then by the end she'd be like, "Oh, okay, wow, that sounds very serious." <laughs> so and, was, was it um, always the same response from her? Mostly, but then sometimes she would. That's what I mean. Like she. By the time she got dementia, she, she, once she, once she started, um, losing, like she's, she lost the ability to live completely independently. She couldn't really, and that was super hard for her and totally flung her into depression. Mm-hmm. It was very tough. And, um, she, um, I don't know, like at that point, I think sometimes there were definitely times when it seemed like dying was a, was a comforting thought to her sure because she didn't want to she didn't want to end up not knowing who anyone was mm-hmm. and um she, she knew that that was going to come eventually so i think like the fact that she got cancer it was it was like you know it it, it, it that kind of um you know it, that, that kind of softened the blow a little bit because she was going to avoid living for five years in memory care where she right couldn't speak and you know lots and lots and millions and millions of people do that so she was happy to be spared that i think did you over the course of those 40 times i mean at a certain point it becomes mundane right like you can't be feeling yeah I, it was nope exactly it was like explain after a while it was just like i just given the facts yeah and, did um, you sharpen the explanation where you're like i can cut this part it, that's not essential to what she needs to know right now, or yeah. I'm a little more tired today, so I don't want to have to go through the whole thing. Was it like that? Yeah, it, it was pretty rehearsed and definitely got more efficient as it went. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, you know, I might offer details of like, do you remember when you were in the hospital and this nurse said this? And um, so, yeah, I, I had it down pretty well and I was pretty ready for it whenever I went in there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and her it was it was but it was a you know, it was a pretty heavy experience. Right. You know, like just having to because everyone's like, what's it like when you tell your parent that they're, you know, that they're terminally ill and they're gonna die? And I literally had to do it forty times. So um it was just like, you know, and when she would ask me, I could tell in her face she had no idea. Um, you know, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't stick. She couldn't, she couldn't like form new memories like that. So she remembered her phone number when she was right, 10 years old right. or whatever, but she would, she didn't remember that, you know? Well, did you have to every time? Like, did you ever, were you ever like, I don't need to today? No, because she, sometimes she would be a little bit like, I was, she'd be a little bit irritated. Like right. what's going on here? Yeah. yeah. You know, what? you know, why am I here? This something's up, you know? Yeah. So, um, I didn't really feel, it wasn't really an option to just say like, Oh, you're just here for a while. And 
you know, could have said that, but and she would probably wouldn't remember that either. But um, I guess I thought that by repeating it, there was more chance that it would sink in. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't know if that ever totally happened. What did it do to you to be in that sort of, I mean, it almost sounds like a, it's like fucked up to say like a meditative state with that, but it's like a ritualistic thing. Like what did that do? You know, what was your emotional experience of having explaining your mom's terminal illness to her be a ritual? Yeah. Well, it kind of goes back to, in a way it goes back to um, what we were just talking about with like ask for help. And so um, in that, um, you know, like it's, it's hard for me to ask, ask for help. I, there's, it does something for me emotionally to be known as a caregiver. And so, um, and you know, like, I think that um, it it felt like a duty, you know? Um, And I felt like I was, I don't know, like, um, emotionally it was, it was, it was definitely hard, but I, I very, I very early made my peace with the fact that like this spared her in some way. Cause I really, I really think it did, yeah. you know, um, she, like I said, she had this, um, she really didn't want to move into this assisted living place. It was actually quite independent. I think it was just called, I think it was technically independent living. Um, she could come and go as she pleased, but when she moved there, I sold her car because I, it was not safe for her to drive anymore, but she was, and she was really angry at me that I sold her car and she actually brought it up in her deathbed. She was still pissed. But, um, (laughs) and I was like, sorry, mom, I stayed safe. So she, she like never let that go. Wow. But, um, but you know, she, she moved into this place and then, um, she, she met this guy and she had a boyfriend and he was amazing. He was this awesome guy. He was 82 years old and they, she was there for 20 months and it was like some of the best years of her. It was like some of the best months of her life. Mm-hmm. Literally. They like went for walks. He was, he was very like, he was very unlike my father. And then he was very like affectionate and warm and kind of doted on her. And she was like in heaven. Speaking of heaven, yeah. that was probably what her vision of heaven looked like. Some a guy there who'd say like, "I love you, and I'm going to help take care of you, and let me know what you need." And that's kind of what he was like. So she had this amazing stretch, and so when she got the cancer diagnosis, I I quickly made my peace with like, if it goes from you know, it's it's she almost like went out on top, you know, yeah. and. um Considering how much, you know, people that live for a long time, live for too long, the amount of suffering involved can just be unbearable, mental and physical. And so the fact that she had, she got cancer and could go out on top, it just felt like a blessing, you know, in some ways, even though it was hard to, you know, say goodbye and it was so sudden and everything. But so when I would go through this ritual and tell her this story, um, I would kind of frame it like that, you know? Mm. And I would remind her that like she has dementia and that over time, you know, um, life will not be worth living anymore. And, um, you know, she wasn't in much pain over those last six weeks. So, um, or almost any. So, um, I was, I kind of just said like, I don't know. I tried to put a good spin on it. And, um, and I think, I think she, she saw it that way as well. And so, um, yeah, like in terms of what I was going through emotionally, it just felt like it was like the, the final chapter of my role is the helper, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, I don't know. It's weird because I, I don't, I, it, it doesn't, it's, it, I'm both, when I talk about that kind of help, I think about both, um, how it feels good to help somebody and you know, it's something that's valued in society Mm -hmm. and so on. But at the same time, I know that it's um, coming from a place of, you know, it's related to the fact that I don't take care of myself as well as I would like to. There's some, there's some connection there. So um, 
that it's easier for me to help other people than to do things for myself. It feels like an avoidance thing for you. Like you're distracting yourself. Yeah. It's kind of like this I can do. I got this. I know how to make lists. I can go over the store with my mom. And then when I think about like, what do I need to do in my own life? That, that seems much harder, you know? What about funeral planning? Do you have specific do's or don'ts you want? You know, like I've it, it, historically, I've kind of thought that like it's not um, it's not up to me, um, or I, I've never thought that I wanted anything specific, you know. Um, but having gone through my parents' deaths, like I understand the value of um, of thinking about it and sharing those wishes. If I if just because it could potentially relieve people that are left from the burden of having to decide and not knowing what you might want. Um, but there's something, there's something, um, really amazing and like quite, I've now, you know, spoken at both my parents' funerals and written eulogies for them. And, um, and there's something so powerful about gathering people from, all through your life who knew you in these different capacities and getting in one place and they get to meet each other and hear about each other. And they all saw different versions of you. And, um, it's so warm and comforting for them to to go through that experience and talk about you and remember good, good things that like that, that to me, that just seems as good as it gets, you know? Um, and you know, I may like, I, I've, I've made, uh, playlists with um not I, i've actually had a conversation with julie and her family about oh what do we want to have played at our funeral her mom's yeah. three so it comes up and so i do think about like music being played at my funeral okay get into it what yeah what is it? so you know one um i i used to <laughs> i used to think about you know sometimes i would think about like what's what's the music that gave me the most intense feeling of being alive. And so maybe that would be a good thing to play when I'm no longer alive because it could carry some essence of you through. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I used to think about that, I would think about, um, Albert Eiler, (laughs) the free jazz sax player. And so, um, I've written about his music, but like something like his song, the truth is marching in, and, um, and so I used to tell Julie, I was like, yeah, play that at my funeral. You know, it's, it also kind of sounds like church music, even though I was, you know, I mean, he was certainly influenced by, uh, by church music, but, um, but then I list like kind of after that, I used to say that to Julie before my parents died. And then afterwards I was like, man, I don't know. That's really going to like freak everyone out. Cause it's like, <laughs> it's like, super noisy free jazz yeah i mean it's it's definitely like there's a lot of melody in it too but it's like it's so intense it's like if if you're in a certain state of mind it sounds like the end of the world too Um, you can't be there to explain to people that there's yeah yeah i can't listen for the melody (laughs) exactly or like the texture of a saxophone right right how he overblows it so i won't be there so they'll just be like this is scary yeah yeah and um so i don't think uh I've kind of decided against that, but, um, and then, you know, um, I definitely thought about the Grateful Dead and, um, you know, a song like either Ripple or, um, or Franklin's Tower, you know, and to me, those embodied so many good feelings that I had and also feelings of like togetherness with other people. Um, and, and then, r- related to the Grateful Dead, um, there's this song by um, Merle Haggard called "Sing Me Back Home," and um, kind of, I really only really started listening to that since I got moved here. But um, the Grateful Dead covered it sometimes in the early '70s, and um, I think he wrote it in the mid to late '60s. But um, it's a great, great song. And, um, I'm sure it's been played at many, many funerals actually, but, um, it's, you know, it's the the song tells the story of an inmate in a prison 
who's seeing his cell, someone from down his cellmates being walked off to go to the electric chair. Mm. And, and his friend says, Hey, can I stop on my friend's cell here and have him play us a song? And so, um, and he plays a song that it's like, you know, a melody he loved as a kid and his friend sings in the song and it's so powerful. It's so amazing. But there's something about like in that, if, if the first thing I mentioned was, um, music as showing the intensity and, of, and like fierce of life, the, the kind of grateful dead stuff that I loved was like people coming together in celebration of music. This third thing is kind of like how music exists in someone's memory and like brings back vivid scenes from their, their life. And so like all three of those songs kind of like look at the end of life from a slightly different perspective. But some one of those would probably be in the mix. Well, you've perfectly transitioned into the question that I have been most excited to ask you specifically because of the way so much of your writing relates to memory. Yeah. The the premise of this question is that there is an afterlife where you get to fully relive just one memory as if whenever you want, however often you want, you're not stuck there. Just you get to pop in and out, but particularly vivid memory, particularly vivid reliving. Right. Of of one memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to choose one. Okay. Which do you choose? I'll, I'll tie it back to anxiety again. But there, there's certain moments in your life where, like, um, something happens and you feel like, okay, the past is done and now I'm looking at the future. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of this fantasy of all the baggage you've accumulated at that point. You can just kind of let it go. Because now, you know, it's like there's some marker where it says, like, I'm I'm living in the future now or in the next part of life. And I don't have to worry about all that stuff that was behind me. I mean, this isn't going to be my example, but an example of that is when I graduated from high school. I remember graduating from high school, went through the graduation and maybe we we're just mulling around, getting ready to go to some a party at some friend's house or something. And I was like, I had this incredibly powerful feeling of like, God, that's over now. Mm -hmm. And all these, you know, all these, all the like little compromises I made along the way and all the like relationships that I kept going because I didn't, they were just people that were around me, but they weren't necessarily what I wanted, but it was, you know, just like, and then all these it just, I was like, that's all done now. That's all in the past. Yeah. So now yeah. I get to re, you get to reinvent yourself, you know, and that's such a powerful feeling. And, um, I had that kind of feeling, um, in a very strong way, but with a lot of other very positive feelings. Uh, I'm going to say the day Julie and I got married. Okay. And, um, so I would, I would relive that day, which I remember being like, there was all these, plans that went into a wedding, et cetera, et cetera. Like you feel weird being in front of people and you're saying things. And there was like a certain amount of nervousness around that. But I do remember like an incredible feeling of freedom that day and a very strong feeling of like, Oh, of like, okay, that was, I'm carrying all these things that like led us up to this moment with me, but I'm not, I'm not like bound by them in the same way that I'll be in the future. And I, you know, I don't know that then that didn't really end up being true exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Did it in any way? I I think in some ways. Yeah. Like I, I think like just by formalizing, you know, we dated for a long, we dated for eight years before we got married, but um, formalizing this thing of like, okay, we're, you know, we're officially going to build a life together. Um, It was, there's still like, comfort in that that is sustaining me you know 22 years later um but not so much in terms of personal reinvention you know like i Mm. still but at that moment even that that seemed possible too 
You know what I mean? It's just like, cause it's so momentous and like everyone's coming there to witness it. And, um, every, you know, all these people, you know, that from both sides of your family, it's not like a funeral in some ways, sure. but that's a bit, that's an even bigger transition. <laughs> but, uh, um, but you know, like, and so it's, it's a, it's a marker of a time where you're like, um, yeah, may, maybe I can leave some of this shit in the past. And, um, did you have specific fantasies about like what specific ways in which you wanted to personally reinvent yourself? Um, you know, like I think, um, yeah, I, I, I do like, you know, it's funny. Like I, I kind of, I, I keep this list, uh, on my computer. Um, I, I don't think this is particularly healthy or like a good way to look to go about this or anything, no, but keep like, going. I, I keep this list of like, um, here are the things I knew I need to do to like live a better life. And, okay. um, yeah, like, but some of it's really simple, you know, eating better, not drinking as much, um, you know, n- like not looking at my phone as much. I mean, a lot of it's just this, this, this kind of stuff that people do for new year's resolutions. Um, but like, I always, I have this fantasy when I look at that list, which I sometimes can go a year without looking at it. So I'd have to like refresh my memories to what's look on at it. the list more goes on the yeah. list at that point. <laughs> that should be number one. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the list more, but like, I'm always like, I guess I, I have this, it, it's totally a fantasy. It just doesn't work this way, but I, there's this fantasy of like, if I can just change this handful of things about myself, then I will be at peace. Uh, I, I, I always say happier, but like, Happier always implies, you know, like you have this huge smile on your face all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but and so it's like I, I do think that's a fantasy, you know. Like I've, I've, uh, I've, I've definitely, you know, I've been to therapy and you know, I've, I've done things to like improve my life. But um, I do, but th- there's this. I do have this fantasy of like just by that. There's could be this switch that's flipped, and you know, the future these things that are, are, you know, that have been so difficult for me for so long are no longer difficult anymore. Well, what are the things? And, well, I know what's on my list. Cause I literally have, <laughs> I, 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 I don't have one single list, but I have gone back through old notebooks and seen like seen lists, seen li- the scene list of the same thing over and over again. Yeah. To the well, same me, effect. A huge one for me is, um, is eating healthier. You know, like, um, I mentioned anxiety and like my two principal ways of dealing with anxiety, which can be so crippling. Um, well, there's probably three. One is eating, sometimes binge eating. Great. Two is drinking. Okay. And three is, um, it's really like, look, like looking at my phone and just scrolling and like trying to like distract myself with that. So it's like, it's like not being in the moment and distracting myself with things. And like, um, those are like techniques, not techniques, but those are things I fall back on when, um, I feel very anxious and, um, that it just feels like, a um, I just, it just feels like I just feel trapped in it sometimes. And yeah. so when I think, when I think about, um, and that, that, that was like the, um, the memory of getting just to keep tying it back to that of, of getting married it's to Julie is like it, the, it felt like freedom. I suppose that's what I'm, what I'm, if I were to define, it's like peace is the end result, but what leads to peace is like freedom. And it's like freedom from freedom from all the, the, the the baggage and ways that you hurt yourself. You know, it's like that, that feels, you can feel trapped under that sometimes. Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting that you felt this on your wedding day because not having been through a wedding myself, the thing I hear from people is that frequently for the married couple, that day can be a very anxiety-filled day. Yeah, totally. And I've heard that too. Some people didn't enjoy it and they didn't eat and they had too many people to say hi to. And um, yeah, for whatever reason, just the way way we planned it and it wasn't enormous and – we kind of the the day that the day itself we kind of like threw off expectations uh, the everyone else's ex- expectations 
we just had fun. Um, and yeah, like it, it's, um, you know, I just, it, and it, it felt like that, that kind of freedom and some of it might've been the day itself, but some of it also might've been just, um, this, um, this event that creates a before and after in your life. And, um, these kind of sharp changes allow you to just give an opportunity to like rethink what comes, you know, after. Yeah, I mean, you're like directly leading into my last big question of the podcast, which is what's your coma? So we could go the route of exploring the ways in which your wedding was a coma, by which I just mean a moment of transformation where before yeah. you're one version of yourself and after you're another. So was the wedding your coma? Um, You, you know, I, it sounds like yeah. it, it was a, a bit of an imagined transformation. Yeah. I, I don't think I would describe it as my coma. Um, because two weeks before the wedding and two weeks after wasn't, it, it, it wasn't that kind of transformation. I don't know what I'm, what I'm talking about. It's a little bit more of a state of mind more than, um, a, a new reality. Yeah. But, um, you know, it would be the best example of that. And, um, it actually has to do with work and, um, which is when I was, 34 uh, years old and I was living in Richmond, Virginia. Julie and I had been married a few years at that point. And um, I was working as a paralegal or legal assistant in a law office in Richmond, Virginia. And um, I was also writing for Pitchfork. So I was writing for Pitchfork, talking about, you know, the music we were talking about earlier, like writing about electronic music. And I was really enjoying it and very passionate about it. And, um, and you know, I would often get up at five in the morning before I went to my day job and write for three hours and turn in my piece and then get on the bus and go to work. And to me, like I had my coffee and that was like heaven to me. So, um, and I was like, I kind of imagine maybe, maybe that's what my life would always be like, you know, I would have these kind of like office jobs that I didn't really care about very much, but then I could do, some writing that I liked, including writing about music. Harvey P. Carrish sort of existence. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it seemed okay. There were definitely times when I, you know, the, the, I didn't like my job very much. And, um, there were times when I thought that sounded miserable too, but maybe I was a little bit resigned to it because I didn't, I lived in Richmond. I didn't have any contacts anywhere. Pitchfork was doing all right. But like, yeah. um, in 2004, emailing blender and saying like, Hey, I write for pitchfork. Like they didn't give a fuck, you know? God, blender. And, wow. <laughs> like, yeah. well, that was, that was always a place that paid well. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, um, they were maximum so any, related, right? It was like a maximum shoot. Yeah. It, well, it was owned by the same company oh, and they okay. often had like boobs, um, you know, women on the cover, not always, but th th it was weirdly like, um, it was a pretty good music magazine. Yeah. Um, it, it tried to be like trashy and fun, but they had a lot of great writers writing for them. Okay. And um, so, but anyway, um, so, and I, so one day I came home from work and I used to always get lunch at this uh, lunch cart that was right outside of the, the office. And, um, and I became friends with these people. They were young people. They worked this lunch cart and you could get pastas and whatever. And they were, and they were very interesting people. And they were like, yeah, this is a great gig. I've been doing this for like nine years because it pays so well and I can get health insurance. I'm like, wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And, um, Julie, I came home from my office day job. Julie said like, Hey, I just heard that there's going to be an opening at, um, one of those cart places. And, um, Maybe she had a friend that worked there and she said, I think you should do that and then write and you can, you can have this part-time job and your main, and, and then you can focus on writing. So it was like Julie's idea and, um, she kind of pushed me into it. And 
So I said, yeah, I am going to do that. And, um, so I started working, I started running this lunch cart. It's probably making like 30, I worked three hours a day, made like 30 bucks an hour and I got health insurance. It was crazy. I worked 15 hours a week for both Julie and I, I got health insurance. Jeez. And so I worked from 11 to two and then I was like, all right, now I'm getting serious. And now I'm just, I'm just going to like go full bore with writing. I started writing for paste, you know, I was writing for I was getting in every weekly I could get in, which is not all that many, but I did get in the Village Voice and the LA, LA Weekly. And so like that like boost was completely life-changing for me because um, right around that time, Pitchfork asked me to um, to do some part-time work for them. Scott Plagenhoff did. And, and then a year or two later, they offered me a job. So like, and then of course, moving to Chicago and working for Pitchfork and then moving to New York and being editor-in-chief, like, completely changed my life like me introducing you to pop Bell yeah, I, on the I, first day at pitchfork i certainly wouldn't be talking to you uh, you know if i had said like true, no, i true, don't want to do true. that yeah if i was like i'm gonna stay in richmond never would have met you never wouldn't be on this podcast there you go but um but yeah so it was like just to transform my life completely and it was like that was that was the coma moment of like working at that lunch cart and saying i'm not gonna I'm not going to have a full-time job, but I'm going to give myself space to write. And like, it's, it's that old thing of like bet on yourself. You know, I kind of bet on myself at that moment and said, like, I'm put, putting all my chips down and I'm going to write about music and maybe I can build a life with this. Yeah. And I was old, you know, I was really old, you know, people, when I was hired at Pitchfork and I met you on that first day, I was 37 years old. Okay. And if, if you're 37, you're ancient as a music writer. Right. You know, of was, course. I was course. just starting. You know, I mean, it's like, well, in my mind, you were like an adult, like in a way that even like other people had spouses, had families, whatever. But like you, uh, you know, and and that's why I think I associate like the shift in my music tastes as like, oh, well, of course I'm growing into ECM stuff. This is what, you know, white dudes in their late thirties, you know, listen to, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that, but at the time that you joined, that you bet on yourself, what was the bet? Cause you were before the, it wasn't, you're saying the moment is a couple years before the offer from Pitchfork. So what did you yeah. imagine your, what was the thing you were betting on the future you imagined building? Th- that I could make enough money writing to make it worthwhile. So it wasn't a, Oh, I'm gonna be able to go to South by Southwest every year. It wasn't a no. oh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be living in New York or any sort of glamour. It was just yeah, I'm to gonna be, be able to spend to, more time time doing the thing you really yeah, do. and to and to make enough money that most of my income comes from writing is probably yeah, and I think it probably did you know, so um, yeah, just to to be able to yeah to be able to say I'm gonna spend the time and. Um, pursue it professionally to the degree that I can say like, yeah, I'm a freelance writer. I mean, that was it. Yeah. I mean, and it's hard. uh, The the thing that I hear from that story is that like people can have their lives changed if employers would just offer part-time employees health insurance. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Health insurance is such a big one. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, you know, I, I, I'll never be without it now. And, and, um, I mean, or I don't, I don't think I would ever go back to state exchanges anymore just because as you get older, you have more sophisticated health problems that right. cost, cost more money. So yeah, it is terrible. I mean, God, if I, I, I thought my life would be, my entire life would be completely different if I didn't have to think about health insurance, you know, like I would have right. pursued many different opportunities. Yeah, know? totally. Well, and this yeah. is like a story that like, you know, being in an, being in an unemployment moment myself and like having to, to explain to, uh, parents, especially like why I can't just, you know, call them to, to make sure, you know, if, if I just show, I want it a little more, that's what'll get me the calls back from the places I've applied to. It it does feel like, you know, there's this there's this narrative of like the boomers don't understand like what the realities of of employment are in 2024. But 
actually, this is in 2000, what, three that you're describing this? Yeah. It, just over 20 years ago, the realities yeah. were quite different. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But that is an amazing um amazing that the lunch cart because that's like you think about like oh the people outside of the building are thinking that as they get older one day they'll be in the building and that's <laughs> yeah, what'll no. get them the insurance yeah no it was it was crazy i mean it was one of the best jobs i've ever had it was it was i i i, I was i was so lucky I what mean, was the I, story it was, with it how did they do so well well this guy is it's called christopher's runaway gourmet in Richmond, still there 20 years later. Okay. It had been around for a while at that point. Um, his food is really, really good. It's very inexpensive. And um, downtown Richmond is, um, it's, it's, it's a city capital or state capital. And there's also a lot of banking and lawyers. And so there's not, there aren't actually tons of places to get lunch down there. So like he has these four of these cards set up. And um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of just like if you work downtown, you're like, let's get Christopher's. And that's it feels like half the city is there, you know? Wow. So like in the summertime, I mean, there would be lined a block long, like literally like snaking around. And I, it was just me and then my assistant, you know, and I would pay them so that they like worked for me. I would give them cash. And so like the two of us would be just like working our asses off. And I guess like at the end of the day, he was making good money. I was making pretty good money because I got a percentage of the sales. That was my only pay. And um, so there was enough left over that he's like, yep, I'll contribute to a health plan. And my portion gets taken out of your earnings. So like my actual checks were pretty small, but it's like got my health insurance and sure. working 15 hours a week. And, um, and, and then I got my money that I'm making writing, you know, so his, his, and I was, I guess it was like a, that started at 11. So every morning I would wake up at like 5.30, I would write from 6 to 10, and then I would go to my cart. And then at two, like my day was pretty much over. I was so tired. Yeah. But it was just like, I, it was, I was so happy. You know, I was like um, doing this work that I loved. I was getting paid to write about music and, um, and. And I guess it was like one of those times in life too, when I felt like I had a lot of discipline, you know, like to, yeah. to make this work, I really had to organize it and be very disciplined. And I don't think of myself as somebody who's very good with discipline in general. Um, so, you know, yeah, it was just like everything kind of came together for that. And that was like the, the first step on the rung of whatever I'm doing now. And not like, you know, there's been some downsides to it too, but. Um, it, it's, 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 it's less even that it was like good and bad. It's just completely transformational. It's just like my life is just very different. Well, but good in the sense that it brought you into a life of doing exactly doing the thing you wanted to yeah. be doing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Does it feel so it's, I'm, I'm inspired to hear that it, there was not like a glamour aspect of the dream. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. you know, before we really like, got into it we were talking about these like you know weird moments of brushes with glamour of famous yeah. people or cool moments are you what's what has your relationship to those things always been like oh i'm i don't I've, you were editor-in-chief at one point i was work, right yeah. Yeah. yeah oh i'm the top guy at the coolest thing in some people's mind and and i get access to all these you know there are some nights that feel like wild you know and yeah and were you was it always like oh this is all like whipped cream this is all extra or you know were there moments of like I, I, is is that like what's your and and now not being in that role what's your relationship yeah. to that like do you know what i'm asking oh totally i mean actually that it, it was very fun at times um you know it's one of those weird things where so well there's there's two components to it one my identity as at pitchfork was always i i think i'm kind of the only person who's had this much of a dual identity at pitchfork where i was both 
an editor and like part of the leadership, but I was also a writer. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I probably ultimately always identified more with the writer part, um, than, you know, with the leadership part, but, um, so it's like, I kind of have these like two histories with pitchfork in a way. Um, but I will say, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, no, it was cool. Like, um, you know, you do notice that people, people treat you differently, you know, like Mm -hmm. you can tell when someone thinks it's, you're special. And, um, you know, like, um, and it, it gave me, it gives you a certain amount of like, um, kind of like fearlessness in a way, because even though it doesn't, it never seems like it's going to last. You're kind of like, I guess I'll just go with this while it's happening. Cause I, I just remember a lot of opportunities to, I mean, you know, speak at things or, um, you know, just do things that I would never have had the opportunity to do and that I didn't necessarily feel qualified for it, but I was just like, eh, they're inviting me. So I'm just going to do it. You know? Yeah. Like there was this, I was just, I was managing it at this time, but like there was a, this place called the Wexner center at Ohio state. It's a very yeah. Lar- yeah, large and well-funded museum and cultural center there. And, you know, some guy emailed me and he's like, yeah, we we have this huge, amazing, like Andy Warhol exhibit here right now. And, um, would you like to come out and give a talk about the Velvet Underground? And, <laughs> and, and, uh, it'll be, you'll be on a panel with Dean Wareham from Luna and Galaxy right. 500. And cause he's going to also be performing at it. And, um, it was just like one of those things where I'm like, Hey, this would never have happened. If yeah. We're going to pitch for And, you know, they flew me out there. They gave me some money. Um, and, and like, I, I, I would say I'm not really like, there've been times in my life where I was pretty afraid of public speaking. So I, you know, so in, in one way I had to overcome that to be in this panel and give this paper. And I, I certainly, I didn't feel remotely like involved with underground expert. I'll say sure, that. I, right. wrote, I like assigned myself. I, I, I had their records and I, I yeah. knew about them, but I assigned myself a review of this, like not very good best of for pitchfork. And I think that's why they like, Oh, this guy, wow. Mark Richardson wrote the, it's called gold velvet underground gold yeah. some comp that's out of print no one's ever heard of but they're like he wrote that for pitchfork he must know a lot about the velvet underground <laughs> and um so i was like i felt under un, like not very qualified when i got there but you know i put some work in and it, i think it went pretty well but like just just that kind of situation of like you could just people treating you like that and like doing nice things like that i mean it was it was it was pretty great it was it was fun to have that experience um, but you didn't feel attached to it? Um, no, no, not really. Or, or maybe I didn't like, yeah, like I, it's, I, I, I guess I, I felt attached to it in, in that, like, I definitely identified with being a top editor there and, um, and I, and I enjoyed it, but, um, maybe it always just seemed like it would be impermanent. I don't know. It's yeah. just, it always felt like it would go away, you know? Um, so it was kind of like an enjoy it while it lasts. And there was just, like I said, the, one of the nice things was just having the confidence that that gives you to say like, yeah, I'm just going to wing it. It'll probably be fine. You know, and like, I would just have a lot more trouble doing that now, <laughs> just because I would think like, if I wing it now, they'd be like, why did we invite this guy again? But at least <laughs> before they would be like, oh yeah, well he's the managing editor pitchfork. So right. That's right. Get, the, right. The business card you know? helps. Yeah. It's like, it, it gives you a certain amount of like, people are more likely to give you the benefit of the doubt than if you're just like some dude, you know, yeah. which is what I am now. So, you know, the, it's interesting that the, the, the moment you've identified as, as your coma moment, was something that it was, it's a moment of you helping yourself by quitting this one job and, and betting on yourself, but you were pushed into it by Julie. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's so funny that it is like this extreme example of you, you know, this, this ultimate good thing you were able to do with yourself came from someone else helping you helping me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but that didn't, 
you don't look back and at that and be like, wow, yeah, I mean, I, I should advocate for myself more or whatever. Is it just like, well, people will look out for me and, and they'll help me when I need to and remind me that, that I need Yeah. To. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, it, it is like, I, I do try to mark those moments when, when I have done that, you know, it's like, it's, it's not impossible. It's just, it, it doesn't happen nearly as much as it should. And I have a huge, huge block with it. So yeah, I, it, it is nice to look back on that and think it was like, I allowed myself to be helped. That's the show. Go to patreon.com slash Dave Marr to become a This Is Your Afterlife patron. Go to thisisyourafterlife.com to listen to the show. Check out Mark's writing and Twitter in the show notes. Thank you to This Is Your Afterlife house band, Lake Mary, for all the music in this episode. And thank you for listening. Tell a friend who'd love This Is Your Afterlife about the show. If you listen in Apple Podcasts, write a little review. I love reading those. Also, rest in peace, rest in power, rest and may all of us act in the memory of Aaron Bushnell and Free Palestine. Until next week, remember... You are a mist. <laughs>